Well, I want to kind of start off this morning by sharing something uh, that's a bit of a, a personal thing for me, but, but it really leads us to where we're um, headed in terms of John 3.16. Um, but it needs a little historical preface to it um, for you to understand. Uh, four generations ago, my great-grandfather, a man by the name of uh, Frederick Beecher Joyce, uh, came into San Francisco from Maine, and he went up into the Sierras, and he bought a 305-acre parcel of land just outside the small town of, of Pioneer, which is just outside of Jackson, 305 acres. And um, since then, it's been my, 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 my family, that, that ranch. And we, we affectionately call it either the ranch or the Joyce Ranch because that was his, his last name. Um, in the house that sits on the ranch, my grandmother was born. And uh, at that house and in, at that ranch, my mother uh, played as a child with her cousins and with her friends. And um, so that means that this place in California has a, a, a place of deep memories for our family and, and it's part of our, our heritage. And so we go there from time to time and just kind of think back how many generations. And my grandmother, still, she's now gone, but she used to tell the story. She remembers the first car when it drove by because before that it was, you know, wagons and horses and she used to talk about remembering the Kirkwoods driving their cattle through the ranch, the ones that owned or the name that goes with this ski place and uh, so it's just all these memories tied to this family plot of land. Well, uh, this past Monday, uh, my family and I went up to clean out the house of the last remaining Joyce to live on that family property uh, because he passed away about a month, month and a half ago. Uh, so the last Joyce living on this family property uh, passed away. And with it um, went the last slice of our family heritage because it was willed, this last five-acre parcel, because it had been divided over the years through the inheritance and through people passing away. This last five acres of this family heritage um, was willed to someone outside the family. So we're there cleaning it out, and um, there was a sense of deep sadness in me, um, like a chapter was closing. I was a, this is a family place that has been in the family for generations, and now it's, now it's, it's gone. And I just remember feeling uh, really sad, like a chapter was closing in family history for us. I think the whole family felt that, in a sense. We're just walking away. Well, I had a, a U-Haul up there because I was willed some family keepsakes, and so we put them in the U-Haul, and I was, I was driving back and, and feeling sad. Um, but it caused me to reflect um, on why was I feeling what I was feeling. And I think a part of it, it part of it's because I'm, I'm just sentimental. Um, my wife will tell you that. Cry over weird things. Uh, but more than that, I've always kind of had a, uh, an inclination towards family history and heritage. Um, ever since I was a kid, I, I did journals um, since I was in junior high, just keeping track of, of things. Uh, that uh, Before some of my uh, parent, grandparents passed away, I sat down with my laptop and just asked them questions because I wanted to preserve like, some of family so that when they passed on, I could keep it with me. Um, I have this Bible that I treasure. It's wrapped in, a, in cloth, and on the front, in the front um, cover are 10 to 12 names listing 10 to 12 generations that go back almost 300 years. For me, that's kind of precious, and so I think that's partially why um, to see that chapter close is hard for me. It's kind of like um, a piece of my history is being rooted out. 
And that's, I guess, the best way to describe it is I, I, I have an a, a inclination to root myself in history and tradition and, and family. Um, family and family names. Uh, they give a sense of meaning, a sense of identity, a sense of belonging. And that ranch, the place, uh, had a certain identity factor, a cert- certain root factor for, for me, um, as I think it does for, for, for perhaps many, many people. Now, maybe that's one of the reasons why one of the first questions we ask people that we just meet is, where are you from? Because there's an identity attached to where you're from. It's like asking John Barry, where are you from? Well, I'm from Minnesota, you know. So, oh, now I understand where you, who you are because of where you come from. Or, uh, Dan, where are you from? I'm from Newcastle, Auburn, you know, Foothills. Oh, that explains why you kind of have a hillbilly side of you. Um, you know, there's just a uh, certain identification and uh, attachment, identity of, of where you come from. In the same way that there's an identification um, with a last name. It, it, it tells you that you're a part of a particular line, particular family. Um, so, I don't know, that being closed for me was, was hard. And I remember driving in the U-Haul, my son Daniel was to my right, and we're driving, you know how U-Hauls, they're just such great, luxurious vehicles, you know? <laughs> AM, FM radio, I mean, roll-up windows anyway. I'm, I'm driving along in a sense of sadness, and um, in that, I remember very distinctly, I mean, it was cloudy that day, and um, we're driving down the mountain, and, um, and the clouds parted, and the sun was setting in the west. It always sets in the west, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I did that first service, too. <laughs> sets in the west. That's a hillbilly side of me. It sets in the west, and, and I remember the sun just came streaming through the clouds, and it splashed on the foothills, which are gorgeous this time of year, just the oak trees and the green, just gorgeous. And God in that moment reminded me of a profound, powerful, and wonderful truth of the gospel. Um, before the wonderful part of the gospel, he reminded me, he said, not audibly, but through his truth, that family names, as good as they are, and as much as God uses those family lines to shape providentially who we are, and we ought to be grateful for them, family names, Deckard, Joyce, Slight, Phillips, streams that come into my DNA. He reminded me that those are fading identities. They're part of an old world that, that is, is passing. That, you know, you can't hold on to, to farms and, and possessions or houses. And in our time, we, of course, really know that. Um, that family names, if there's no heir, they, they can just die People change. Land's get inherited to somebody else. It's all shifting, and it's all basically a flimsy foundation upon which to put one's own identity and sense of meaning, worth, and history. Well, at that very moment when I'm right, reminded about that, and that may sound sad to you, like, wow, so it's all fading and falling apart. At the same time, he reminded me of this powerful gospel truth um, that was communicated to me through Ephesians 2, 8, 19, and 20. Now, keep in mind, I just found out that, hey, didn't just find out, but hey, the land is gone, the chapter's closed. And, and here you have this verse where uh, Paul writes, so then you are no longer, speaking to Christians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints 
and members of the household of God. Members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone or the beginning point of this household of God. Household. Family. And in those moments, I started to reflect on the truth that when I became a believer, and what's true of me is true of you as well, when you became a believer, you were placed in a new heritage. So was I. With a new family history and a new genealogy that is even deeper and more powerful than genetics. It goes along the lines of faith in the spirit which means I can and should see myself as connected primarily to my ancestry of Paul and Peter and Malachi and Jeremiah and Isaiah and David and Moses and Abraham, that those are my family as they are your family. This is my heritage And it's not a flimsy heritage that the family name of this family, uh, this family of God, this household of God is, is not going to fade. It's the family of Christ that we belong to him now and you belong to me and I to you. And we're part of that. And not just that, but in terms of like connecting in my mind at the time, it's like, And you know what? The family ranch, a.k.a. the new earth, no one else is going to get it. And that truth, I've known before, but in those moments, God bridged the gap between mind and soul. Like, this is my family. This is my heritage, and it extends all the way back. And I believe that's how God wants us to see ourselves as part of a new family that goes all the way back. It is our heritage. It's your heritage. It's it's my heritage. In In that moment in sadness, I can all honesty say that out of the sadness came a sweet joy and a worship of the Lord to say, yes, this is where I belong as a Christian. Now, that experience... Um, is precisely, I believe, what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 3. You know, if we've, you've been with us. We've talked about this whole concept of new birth. The spirit of the living God comes upon us and he awakens life. He gives birth to a new reality. And that is being born into a new family. Family. And it's God that births us into a new family, into a new heritage, into a new tradition, into a new genealogy. Um, and we saw last week that um, as the Son of Man is lifted up, that is Christ is lifted up, crucified for the sins of his family and then raised again and exalted to give life to his family. That this is a huge work that God is doing to create a new family on the foundation of Christ and then enacted by the Holy Spirit on the soul of each person who will come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, originally, I was going to skip John 3.16. I mean, who wants to preach on the most quoted verse in all the Bible? That actually kind of sounds boring, 
and it's a huge challenge. How do you keep people's attention with the most quoted verse? But this last week, I had an argument with myself, and I, I lost. <laughs> I'm not sure how you have an argument and don't win and lose at the same time. Someone came up to me after the last service and said, you know, that was really the Holy Spirit. And I said, yeah, I realized that. But I lost the argument. I mean, think about it for a moment. I mean, I'm, I'm asking myself the question, Dan, okay, you've talked about the work of God the Spirit in giving new life, and you've talked about the work of God the Son in being lifted up, crucified, and exalted. Now, are you really going to leave out God the Father? I thought, hmm, maybe that wouldn't be such a good idea. And then on top of that, I thought, you know, am I going to skip over what I believe, in my opinion, is the most wonderful, astonishing word in the entire Bible, and that is love. I thought, no, I, I can't do that. And then I, it also struck me that, you know what, most of the people who have John 3.16 memorized have it memorized out of its context. That really Jesus is talking about this gargantuan, trinitarian work of spirit, son, and father in creating a brand new family. So how can I just leave out John 3.16? So I, like I said, I lost the argument, so here we are. But I have also been reminded in this verse of what is at the root of everything. You know, you got the work of the spirit, and then you got the work of the son, but underneath it all, when you get to the bedrock of creation, bedrock of redemption, bedrock of our salvation, it goes no deeper than the first phrase of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That, my friends, is, is where it all comes from. That Jesus coming and Jesus working and Jesus dying, it all is compelled by something deeper and more original, and that is the love of our Father. Now, that's ancestry. That the great, we oftentimes in our focus on Christ, which is a good thing, we forget that the grand architect of creation and redemption is our Father. He's the one who initiated the entire thing. Christ came because of the Father's love for us. So he began the whole thing, but his love for us, our Father, is not just a, a, a kind of a generic love, as if I love you, but, you know, we have here in this verse the simple but often over or under um, paid attention to words so. God so loved the world. You know, when we want to say to somebody that we love them, we can say, I love you. And that, that says something. But if you want to kick it up a notch and you want to emphasize it a little more, you include a little word. So we'll say, I love you so much. It intensifies that love. And if you really want to bump it up a notch, and maybe you're texting your husband, and you text and you say, I love you so, in caps, S-O, because we all know, and if you don't know by now, when you're capitalizing and texting, you're shouting, right? I love you so much. That's the opening lines of what began everything, is that God loves the world so. It's intense beyond imagination. 
That's the love of the Father. And that's the origin of why we're here worshiping is because God loved the world so. Which, by the way, is why when everything's said and done in the New Testament, and this is across the board, ultimately, because everything comes from the Father's love, he's the one that gets the final and ultimate credit and glory for everything that's been done. So you have the opening statements of Paul in Ephesians, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he blesses the Father. Peter does the same thing in his opening letter when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus. It all goes back to him. Because ultimately, it all comes from this one single root of everything that is his love. Intense love. That's, that's bedrock. It's the beginning of creation redemption. and redemption. The reason we're here is because there was love. And our ancestry goes all the way back beyond Genesis 1.1. All the way back to a love that the Father had before the foundation of the world. That is family. And that's the foundation. But then this little verse also gives the measure of God's love in two ways. By the object, namely the world, and by the gift, that is, the only son. These are polar opposites, the world and the son. Now, what we should be impressed by when it says, for so God so loved the world isn't so much that the world is so big as much as it is so bad. The world in John's vocabulary is, is a dark place. It is a sin-dominated, death-ruled, fallen existence. Or to put it in maybe contemporary terminology, it's a, it's a, it's a cosmic slum. It's a ghetto. It's the red light district. I mean, you have one example. That's the way he uses it throughout the Gospel of John. Here's one example. He uses it over and over. It's, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So here, the world is viewed as hating the Lord. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So contrary to the opinion of some, the world, according to God's vision, and according to this verse, is, is not lovely. It, he doesn't love it because it's lovely or it's beautiful, it's intrinsically kind or selfless. Rather, it's dark and it's twisted. And that's why his love is so amazing. Like, you would love that? Now, I know that we're, oftentimes as humans, we, we look at the world with a couple different lenses. We have good neighborhoods, and we have not-so-good neighborhoods. We think of people as being good and other people as being bad. And I recognize that there may be some, some merit in terms of human perspective on seeing the world that way, not wanting your nine-year-old daughter to wander into certain neighborhoods, for example. But what I do want to say is God doesn't see things that way. That he basically sees the entire world as the Tenderloin District. 
That's how he sees it. Because he knows the hearts of men and women. And he knows, and I'm going to be specific here, no offense intended, but he knows that the people who live in Green Valley and Rancho Solano are just as twisted and sick as the people who live on Grande Circle. No offense to those who might live on Grande Circle. I mean, if you're a Christian, I have so much respect for the fact that you live there, and, and you should be there, and we're planning a tutoring ministry there. But the same kind of twisted stuff and power plays and selfishness that exists in bad neighborhoods and it, it, it exists in rich neighborhoods. The whole world is seen as the Tenderloin District. And the same world that uh, city officials would like to bulldoze down and do some urban renewal, that's the world that it says God so loved. So it almost should make you, if you were sensitive to the vocabulary of John, just make you stop and, and stutter and stagger like you love the world? That's, that's one part. That's how, that's how low down the love of God goes in his mercy and grace. That's why it's, it's such a great measure that God so you know, intensely loves such a dark place with twisted people. But then that is matched by the infinite gift, and that is the Son. That's the second part that measures is that what he gave. He gave his, as you well know, the only Son. Only meaning the only one. There's only one. It's not like God had ten sons and he could afford to get rid of one. In the Trinity, there is only one Son. And we're taught in the Scripture that the Father and Son have existed with immeasurable love and timeless eternity, forever and ever, back and forward. And that each of them were completely in love with each other. The father looking at the son saying, you are the most amazing, powerful, wise, beautiful thing I've ever seen. And the son looking at the father saying, you are the most amazing, wise, and beautiful thing I've ever seen. There is a constant delight in them seeing each other. And it's a love that is defined by worthiness and beauty and holiness. There's nothing negative, and it's always overflowing. In fact, theologians have argued it's out of this love between father and son that the world is created. Because it so overflows between the two of them. So when it says that the father gave his only son, well, that means the most precious gift that one could ever give. There's nothing in heaven that's, that's bigger than that. Now, I know that sounds cliche. I, I admit it. You know, you hear that? The father gave his only son. And it just, some, for some, it's just it's like droning familiarity. I I've heard that before. I just wish whenever we'd say that, I've heard that before, and therefore I am emotionally disinterested, I wish we'd repent. Because we have been given such great salvation that it should cause the heart to leap for joy. At any rate, this is what the Father gave. Or let me come at it from another angle. Um, one of the things that I've come to know about the Lord is that the word frugal or frugality has no part in his being. We talk about being frugal, and for us, it is good to be frugal in terms of spending on ourselves. But just realizing frugality and frugal have no place in the being of God, that the God I've come to know in the Scripture is a God who is opulent, ostentatious, unimaginably generous. He is over the top in everything he does as if he wants to blow everybody's minds by how generous he is. 
Never frugal, ever. I mean, just look at the created order around us. Um, we're told he could have created a single rose to feed the bees and scent the air and for Valentine's Day. But he didn't. He didn't stop at one. We're told by botanists that there are over 250,000 varieties of flowers. And they also go on to say that 10 to 15% haven't even been discovered or categorized yet. yet. And that doesn't count the extinct species. That's like grandiose, over the top. He just blew us all away. That's how he operates. He is not frugal. He gives above and beyond. Or, or take the, 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 the universe that we live in. Um, on, in which this tiny planet on which he was going to unfold and show the most amazing demonstration of divine grace ever to be seen on this little tiny globe, he could have placed it in a universe the size of our solar system, and we still would have said, wow. But he didn't. He just threw it out there in a way that continues to bewilder and befuddle the, the comprehension of men and scientific theory. We're just trying to figure it out, and we can't. It's like square footage in the mind of God can't even be grasped by language. We're awed by a 6,000 square foot mansion, but God's like, it's what? It's just on a totally different level because he is not frugal. He just lets it all out. But with all of that said, just remembering that when, when he, it comes to giving his son, this isn't a gift of creation. This is a gift of sacrifice. This is a sacrifice of self. This is the most intimate union, an eternal union. And so when, when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, it means he gave absolutely everything. Everything. He emptied his pockets. And that is the most opulent, ostentatious, over-the-top, unimaginably generous thing that someone could or will ever do. Which is why we will sing, I could sing of your love forever. I can sing of your love. I will sing of your love forever because it's just that big. I think if King David was to rewrite Psalm 37, where it says, your love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. And if King David had lived long enough to see Jesus die, I think he would have said, I was wrong. Your love, O Lord, extends beyond the heavens. That's just how big it is. So that's, that's, but that's the measure of it, of his love, loving the world. We also learn from this passage those who receive this love, this intense love that started everything that is seen in its measure by who he loves, namely the world and what he gave, namely the son. But he also says here that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, it's the ones who trust that receive the saving benefits of God's love. Now, let me be technical for one second here and just say that when it says there, for God so loved the world, that I believe the world there means all mankind. 
I don't think it, the word world is a code word for God's chosen elect. Now, Paul, in some of his letters, will use the word world in a more restrictive sense. But just as we use words differently, so the apostles will use words differently. And the way he uses world in the Gospel of John, I don't believe can have that limitation. Because frequently you find him talking about the world as distinct from the disciples, or we might call them the chosen, which means the category of world goes beyond those who do or will believe. But here's the thing. God's love is only effectual or effective. The saving benefits of it are only received by those who trust. That's it right here. Whoever believes in him. Notice what's not required. He doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever gets baptized. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever gets on their knees and prays facing east towards Jerusalem five times. He doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever walks an aisle. The simple call is to trust. The simple call is to trust that our Father, who loved us from eternity past, has provided us in Jesus what he did and who he is, everything we need. Everything. It's not as if in Christ we just get the spiritual benefits. That's way too narrow. Everything's included in the Son, the product of the Father's love. Everything. Everything you need. Security. History. Mercy. Meaning. Significance. Love. A place to live. Community. Friendship. Life. It's all offered to us by the immeasurable love of the Father to whoever will trust in Him. That's the simple, most crucial question that any soul has to wrestle with. Do I trust in the Father's love who is, because His love is all-inclusive. He doesn't say, I'll pay half your way and you pay the rest. You can't add to it. You can't pay it back. It simply is, and it is offered to all who will believe. I trust and place my life completely in your hands, knowing that what I need and everything that I need is ultimately found in one name, Jesus. And God gave him to me because he loved us so much. That's the simple um, response this calls for, not just for unbelievers, by the way, but as we grow in this love and faith in the Son, so we grow in the knowledge and the experience of our Father's love for us, and it begins to spill over in our life and outside of our lives, and not just as a theory or an abstraction, but as a dynamic reality in your life. He loves me, and the rest of life is a discovery of that central truth communicated and given to us in Christ. And then the last part here, 
just the effect. Here you have God, the origin, his love is the origin of all things. Um, and it's measured by who he loved, the world, and what he gave his son. The ones who are recipients of this love are those who trust in it. And then the effect, of course, is should not perish but have eternal life. Should not perish. It means we're not going to go down with the ship. Now, this, this ship is sinking, the world in which we live. You know it, 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 it's sinking. I know that most people know intellectually that the sun's going to burn out and eventually things are going to fall apart. But down here, to actually believe that this ship is sinking, humanity is sinking. We might think it's unsinkable, like the Titanic, but it's not. It's just, do you get the sense, by the way, just watching the news? I mean, the Arab world is coming apart politically. The Western world is on the edge of financial and moral ruin. It's as if the seams of our reality are stretching and coming apart. It's because it's sinking. And at some point, I don't know when, it's definitely not going to be in May 2011. <laughs> Sorry, I just blurped out there. Um, it will sink beneath the waves of self-destruction and wrath. That's going to happen. You can sense it already. The signs all point to yes. But because of the love of the Father providing the Son to those who believe, he says, you shouldn't sink with the ship. But you shall live eternal life, which is not something in the future. It is. But it's something that begins in the here and now. It's, it's the abundant life that begins here. To know that I'm, I'm actually a part of a family here and now, born into and experiencing eternal being now. And living that out. And life in, in the Bible's world is all wrapped up with and defined by our relationship with our Father. This is life, Jesus says, John 17, that you know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. It's that relationship that defines life itself. And you enter into it, we enter into that already. And we begin the enjoyment of the benefits of that already right here today, which is why we can worship with joy because we already do know him. We're already part of a new family. There, and there's nothing better than that. And so if, if you're here this morning and you're like I was last Monday, you're saddened because things have been taken away from you. You're saddened because family lines have been broken or marriages have been tattered. You sense displacement. Like you don't belong. You've got to readjust yourself here and think about what God has given you that's so much deeper and so much better than that. The old stuff is going to fade and it's going to fall apart and it's going to be willed to other people. That's okay. But there's something that remains true and unchangeable, and that is you're a part of the family of Christ. And you have an eternal family around you and behind you and before you. And you have a relationship with your father that is the very essence of what life is about. And he promises to take you to the family ranch. And no one's going to take it from us. The likes of which we cannot begin to ask or imagine what will be. That's your family. That's my family. That's your heritage. That's my heritage. And so... I don't see any reason why we shouldn't have sadness melt to joy and worship, regardless of our circumstances, because you know what? This is the most important thing in all of life.
We're a part of God's household. Can you say amen to that? Father, thank you so much for your rich mercy and grace. I think sometimes finishing a message in silence would be better. And so I will.